All right, in your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Ezra chapter 3 and Psalm 118. Ezra chapter 3 and Psalm 118. Today we're building a biblical theology of worship. What does it mean to worship God? I asked a few people a question, how would you define worship? And maybe in your own head, how would you define worship? My guess, my idea is that we do not have a problem with worship. All of us were created to worship. We're going to worship someone or something. I think our problem lies in what our heart goes after. It's not a worship problem, it's a heart problem. And today we're going to look at a biblical theology of worship. What does it mean to worship God? So let's dig into Psalm 118 real quick. You heard this song forever. Well, this is where you see it in Scripture. Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever. Let Israel say, His love endures forever. Let the house of Aaron say, His love endures forever. Let those who fear the Lord say, His love endures forever. When hard-pressed, I cried to the Lord. He brought me into a spacious place. The Lord is with me. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? The Lord is with me. He is my helper. I look in triumph on my enemies. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in humans. It is better to take refuge in the Lord than to trust in princes. All the nations surround me, but in the name of the Lord, I will cut them down. They surround me on every side, but in the name of the Lord, I cut them down. They swarmed around me like bees, but they were consumed as quickly as burning thorns. In the name of the Lord, I cut them down. I was pushed back and about to fall, but the Lord helped me. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. Shouts of joy and victory resound in the tents of the righteous. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. The Lord's right hand is lifted high. The Lord's right hand has done mighty things. I will not die, but live and will proclaim what the Lord has done. The Lord has chastened me severely, but he has not given me over to death. Open for me the gates of the righteous, and I will enter and give thanks to the Lord. This is the gate of the Lord through which the righteous may enter. Now, how do we enter through those gates? It's not our goodness. It's Jesus, his righteousness. That's how we come. I will give you thanks for you answered me. You see, this psalm should be our song. This is our worship. Our hearts should be moved because God's love is forever. And that should be our experience. But then we keep reading. I will give thanks for you answered me. You have become my salvation. If you know what it is to be saved, you will worship the God who has saved. His name is Jesus. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Who is that? Jesus. The Lord has done this. And it is marvelous in our eyes. The Lord has done it to this very day. Let us rejoice today and be glad. Lord, save us. Lord, grant us success. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. From the house of the Lord, we bless you. The Lord is God. And he has made his light shine on us. With bows in hand, join in festal procession up to the horns of the altar. You are my God, and I will praise you. You are my God, and I will exalt you. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. And God's people said, Amen. Amen. That's the God we worship. 
That's the God we worship. And, and there's four passages that we need to look at early on to give us a big biblical view of worship. And I think they help, and you'll see all of these in Ezra chapter 3. In Ezra chapter 3, Matthew 15, 8 through 9. Matthew 15, if you're taking notes, write down those four verses, those four passages, because they inform our worship. All right, so, so here we go. Matthew 15, 8 through 9. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. I do not want to waste my worship. The songs we just sung are in vain if our hearts are far from God. You can say the right words and miss out on worship. Have you ever done something in vain? I have, a few times. Bailing, volleyball. Thought I was, listen, I go back in the day, middle school, intramural volleyball champ here. I thought I knew something about volleyball. So, of course, I could help a sixth grader make the volleyball team. So we go up to Holmes High School. I don't know about, if you know this, in the summer, Holmes High School, the gym, no AC. We turn the big fans on. We're sweating. I'm saying, you know what, Balin? We're going to serve from this line and get it over the net. And we're going to stay here until we get it done. Right? She starts out, boom, boom. We do this hundreds of times. Spend a couple hours up in the gym sweating. But you want to know what? When I left, you want to know what I said to myself? She's going to make the team. She can serve now. Well, she goes to tryouts, and the coach informed her, uh, Balin, middle school volleyball with, with the team, you got to serve overhand. We had spent two hours serving underhand, and now it's a totally different thing to throw it up and hit it. Needless to say, thank goodness Balaam made the team, but it was not because of my training. My training was in vain. It wasn't worth anything. Or, or the time we took a student for the written test. Now, you might be thinking, written driving test, no problem. Well, it is if you can't see. So we take the student up. He goes in. He forgets his glasses. Guess what the first thing they do for the written test? Eye test, vision test. He comes out. I thought he just forgot something. I go, oh, man, what'd you forget? He's like, man. I failed. I go, how did you fail the written test? You were in there 20 seconds. He goes, man, I can't see. I'm like, oh, okay. We took a trip out there to take a test in vain. Now, this is why this is important. Those things aren't really significant. But your worship of God is eternally significant. And one thing that I don't want to do, and I don't want you as our church to do, is worship God in vain. So here's my question. What is your heart going after right now? What stirs your affections? What gives you confidence? What do you treasure? Because where your heart is will be seen with what you worship. Your lips are full of what occupies your heart. That's why right there you see you worship me, you praise me with your lips, but your heart's far from me. We don't want that to be us. So let's look at what we do with worship. Romans 12.1. Romans 12.1. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. So in a sense, 
everything you can do in life can be done for the glory of God. It can be your worship. So that's worship in a big sense, a 24-hour-a-day, seven-days-a-week definition of worship. Offer to God your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. We also see John 4, 23 and 24. Yet a time is coming, and now has come, when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. And this, this might be helpful. True worship is based on a right understanding of God, that is truth, and a right valuing of God's worth, a valuing or treasuring of God above all things empowered by the Holy Spirit. That's why we worship God, not something created. God has supreme value. And then the, the last text that we'll consider today is Hebrews 13, 14 through 16. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we are looking for the city that is to come. Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer to God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name. And do not forget to do good and to share with others, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. So those are the four passages that, that we want to reference as we grasp this idea of what worship is. All right, let's pray, and we'll get to work. Father, thank you for gathering us here this morning. Lord, I pray that you open up our minds, open up our hearts to receive your truth. Lord, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth, for you are an awesome God whose love endures forever, and we benefit from that. So let your praise be always on our lips. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. All right, number one, worship aligns with the word of God. Worship aligns with the word. This is what we mean by worship and truth, and you see this in Ezra chapter 3. So Ezra 3, 1 through 2. When the seventh month came, the Israelites had settled in their town. The people assembled together as one in Jerusalem. Then the son of Jehozadak and his fellow priest and Zerubbabel, son of Shetil, and his associates began to build the altar of God of Israel to sacrifice burnt offerings on it in accordance with what is written in the law of Moses, the man of God. They're aligning worship up to the word. Ezra 3, 4. Then in accordance to what is written, aligning worship up with the word. In Ezra 3.10, when the builders laid the foundation of the temple of the Lord, the priests and their vestments and the trumpets and the Levites, the sons of Asaph, with symbols, took their places and praised the Lord as prescribed by David, king of Israel. Again, lining their worship up to the word of God. True worship says true things about God. And I think all of us understand this. I think all of us understand this. Uh, eventually, February 28th will we'll come around, and it'll be time for a wedding anniversary for me. And I'm writing this card. Let's say I'm writing this card, find the perfect card for Julianne. And in there, I put a note. I put a note for Julianne. And I put, Julianne, you have the most beautiful, long, black hair. You are an awesome mother to our two wonderful sons. Your brown eyes light up my world. Love, Ben. 
That would not go well. She would read that and be like, who in the world are you talking about? Because that's not Julianne. She doesn't have black hair. We don't have sons. Not brown eyes. So when I write something to Julianne to praise her, I need to make sure those things are true about Julianne. Now you're like, well, no, duh, Ben. But you know we do this to God? We say a lot of things about God that aren't true of God. And that worship is in vain because we worship in spirit and in truth. So, with the songs that we sing, with the songs that we sing, they mean something because they come from the Word of God. Our worship aligns to the Word. For me, every time I preach, you should see that it's text-driven. The passage drives the sermon. I'm not giving you a bunch of ideas or self-help talks or some great stories that'll make you laugh. I'm trying to deliver the word and apply it to your life. Our worship is word-centered, aligning to the word of God. And so when we say something about God, it is true about God. All the things that we've sung today, all the things that we read today will be true things about God. Why? Because when we worship We worship in spirit and in truth. Our worship must align to the word of God. Now, this is the awesome privilege that we have as believers. All of us, all of us have an opportunity to have a copy of the word of God. If you do not have a Bible, let us know and we will get you an NIV Bible. And you can keep it because this is so important. If you fill your heart and mind with the word of God, watch how your heart will sing praises to God. The more you know about God, who He is and what He has done, the louder your praise will be. Our worship aligns to the Word of God. Number two, worship replaces worry. Worship replaces worry. Look at verse three. Despite their fear of the people around them they built an altar on its foundations and sacrificed burnt offerings on it to the Lord both the morning and evening sacrifices alright then you go to verse 13 the last part of verse 13 and the sound was heard far away both joy and weeping but they weren't worried about being quiet they're not doing this in secret they sing and worship so that the noise is heard far away why? Because worship has replaced their worry. You've got to understand, these are exiles coming back to their homeland. There is no standing army. There's no one coming to their aid to protect them. There is no wall to keep an army away. And it says that they are afraid of the surrounding neighbors. And they have a good right to be. So what do they do? Do they go back to King Cyrus and say, hey, we need some backup? Do they, they pull together and say, hey, who can be in our army and, and form a military leader so that they can protect themselves? No. What do they do? They worship. They build an altar. And they sing praises to God. Why? Well, I think James Hamilton helps us understand this. He goes, they are not acting in spite of their fear, but because of their fear. They seek God in worship because they fear people around them. They are not trying to protect themselves or their homes. 
Or are they? These are the people who have their hearts stirred by God. These returning exiles have learned who they can and cannot trust. They can trust God. When you respond to danger by worshiping, you not only declare, but you celebrate God's power to protect you. You see, this isn't the first time God's people were scared. You remember when they came out of Egypt and they send out scouts to the promised land, spies to see the land, and they come back and they say, hey, the land is fantastic, but there are giants in the land. And as a matter of fact, the statement that they said is, and we look like grasshoppers in their eyes. And it says that the people were terrified. Listen, listen to how they responded to that report. In Numbers 13, this is how they responded. Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night because they're afraid of their neighbors, just like they are in Ezra. But unlike Ezra, listen to how they respond. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt, or would we have died in the wilderness? Why is the Lord bringing us into the land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? You see, when you worship God, you remember who God is. And the exiles the second time in Ezra Remember, just as God protected and provided for his people long ago, he will do the same for them. And it leads to worship. You see, this is <clears throat> where you see the second part of that verse. We understand that we should worship God in truth, but we also worship God in spirit. And the Holy Spirit helps us place the right value on God. You see, the people didn't value their own personal security over God. They knew that their security was found in God. They placed the right value on God. We did a, a wedding last night. Omar and Lindsay. Omar and Lindsay got married. Now listen, this poor couple, outdoor wedding, in a barn, in between thunderstorms, muddy, grass all over the place, windy. We finally get to the, the ceremony. And, and you know, at every ceremony, the question is asked, uh, Will you take this woman to be your wedded wife? Now, at that point in time, the groom has a job to do. Not a very difficult job. But there's a lot of wrong answers you could give here. I guess we've come this far. Why not? Could say that. Uh, I don't know. I don't, let me ask some, some of my friends. Guys, do you think this is worth it? I guess. There's a lot of wrong moves he could do. But you want to know what Omar did? He said, I do, and then he repeated vows in sickness and in health, richer or poor, death do us part. I'm here. I'm not leaving. When feelings fade, when life gets hard, I'm with you. Why? Because he placed the right value on his bride. And you see, the people here valued God over their security. And that's how they were able to worship despite their fear. What value have you placed on God? What value does Jesus have in your life? Is the only time you sing and speak praises of God for a few songs here on Sunday? If so, if so, you may not have the right value placed on who God is and what he has done. But you can change that. Realize who you are in Christ. Realize what Jesus has done for you. 
Put supreme value on God and watch how your worship will be ignited through the week. Place the right value on God and worship will be ignited. All right, so that's, that's number three, right? Worship aligns to the word. Worship replaces worry. But then we also see worship reflects worldview. Worship reflects worldview. In Ezra 3, 4 through 6, Then, in accordance with what is written, they celebrated the festival of tabernacles with the required number of burnt offerings prescribed for each day. And then it talks about the new moon sacrifices and burnt offerings and other festivals. Now, I just want you to see this. Have you guys ever been to a Feast of Tabernacles? Feast of Tabernacles was for God's people to remember that God is with them and has provided for them. This was instructed when they go through the wilderness, they have these temporary dwellings. And they would have this week-long feast. And what they were doing, they were saying and reminding themselves that this world belongs to God. And God is the provider for his people. And we will trust in him. And our God is with us. <clears throat> the God who created is also the God who is with us. And they're reminded every year at the Feast of Tabernacles. It shaped their world view. What shapes your world view? You view the world one way or the other. You either have a biblical worldview or a worldview made up of a lot of people's opinions. And one thing that helped the people were these festivals. You want to know why we worship every Sunday? Because we believe that there is a God who is with his people and provides for his people. And so we worship him. This is shaping our worldview. We view worship as priority number one in our lives because God is number one priority in our lives. That's why we show up on Sunday morning. This is where Romans 12.1 comes back into play. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Now, to understand Romans 12.1, you need to understand Romans 11. So what informs being living sacrifices because that's hard that's hard one pastor put it this way living sacrifices have the tendency to keep walking off the altar so how do we get our worldview back on no this life is not about me this life is about god and i will worship jesus for as many days as he blesses me with how do i keep reminding myself and focused on that worldview well romans chapter 11 33 to 36 informs this Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been a counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. If God gets all the glory, then the natural response of every life should be a living sacrifice to the glory of God. That's our worldview. Romans 12, 1 is shaped by Romans 11, 33 to 36, and that needs to be our worldview. How do you see the world? Unfortunately, one of the idols in our community, but all throughout the world, is that we live in a world where we think it revolves around us. 
we had uh, senior recognition. As a matter of fact, Donovan, Donovan was there. You saw it. DeMarcus, I think you helped with the senior day. And, and what happens is we have this commitment day. And, and it's good to celebrate accomplishments in life. But it's bad when you make it all about you instead of everybody else that has also committed. And it was amazing to see the aggravation of parents and family and, and the amount of glory they try to heap on a person through committing to a school. Another one was the Hespi Awards. Hespi Awards recognizes all the sports programs at Holmes High School. And it's amazing how much an athlete wants the attention and glory from everybody else. It's almost as if the football team's purpose or the basketball team's purpose or the volleyball team's purpose or the band's purpose was to heap up glory for the individual. And it's amazing how parents think all glory belongs to their student athlete. That's their worldview. And you want to know what the problem is? The problem is when that's our worldview. When we think that this world should operate to the glory of me. I go home, after, let's say after church, after, after preaching, I, I, we, we turn off the AC, turn off the lights, we go home, I sit down, and you know what? I get home and I think the world should revolve around me. So the four girls better watch out. They better have the changer on the cushion. I don't know which of the four I'd pick to cook lunch. We almost burnt the house down yesterday cooking ramen noodles, but we didn't. I don't know who would cook lunch, but somebody's going to cook lunch because it's all about me. N nobody wants that. Nobody wants to live with that type of person. But you know what? Our hearts really love the praise of other people. We really love to glorify ourselves. And now here's the problem. When we live to worship ourselves, there is no room to worship God. So the question is, what is your worldview? Setting up temporary tabernacles to remember that God is with us and God provides for us was an awesome way to shape God's people's worldview that this is about God, not ourselves. How do you do that? How do you do that as a family? How do you do that as an individual? You got to put in reminders. You better be saturating yourself in the Word of God. You better be getting together with a group, praying for one another. You better hear the Word of God on a consistent basis. You better sing with all of your heart the praises to God, especially when they line up to the Word, only when they line up to the Word. And that's what happens here on Sundays. That's our worldview reminders. All right, so worship aligns with the Word, replaces worry, reflects our worldview. But then number four, worship ignites work. If you read 7 through 11 in Ezra, you see that they eventually get to work. Go down middle of verse 8, the priests and the Levites and all who had returned from captivity to Jerusalem began the work. They started to lay the foundation of the temple. It is an amazing thing what happens when we worship God, we get to work. Right after, in Hebrews chapter 13, another one of our passages that we looked at today, right after we see the writer say, continually offer God a sacrifice of praise, what does he say? In verses 15 and 16 of Hebrews 13, he says, Through Jesus, therefore, let us continually offer God a sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that openly profess his name, and do not forget to do good. And to share with others. For with such sacrifices, God is pleased. That's work. Our worship will be reflected in our work. 
Have any of you guys seen Chariots of Fire? It's a movie I think was made in the 1950s. Chariots of Fire. Worth watching. I understand the graphics and all that is from the 1950s. Not a bad movie. Great message. And this is the message. Based on 1924 Olympics, two runners, Eric Liddell, Harold Abrahams. Both were gifted and successful athletes who carried the hopes of their respective nations on their backs. Eric Liddell was a devout Christian, represented Scotland. He was a missionary. Some believed that he should give up the sport to preach, but Liddell believed that God had called him to race and to race for the glory of God. Harold Abrahams ran for Great Britain. He loved his country as well and the sport, and he was obsessed with winning. Studied the sport, threw himself completely into it, made running his overarching passion. One worshipped God as he ran, and the other worshipped running. In the movie, you see a clear contrast between Liddell and Abrams. They both run, but they run for very different reasons. In one clip, this is what Abraham says. And now, in one hour's time, I will be put out there again. I will raise my eyes and look down the corridor, four feet wide, with ten lonely seconds to justify my whole existence. But will I? His worship was all about running. But... In a different scene, you have Liddell. And this is what he says. I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Abraham seeks satisfaction and joy in the race, and it always eludes him. Liddell finds satisfaction in Christ, and he experiences his joy as he runs. Now, this is true of you. This is where you need to apply this to your life. Let's say there's two artists paint a similar picture. One seeks joy in the painting and is never quenched. The other seeks joy in God and feels his pleasure as he paints. Two doctors perform surgery. One performs surgery because he loves the feeling of being needed. Another performs surgery for the glory of God and she senses God's pleasure as she operates. Two parents raise their kids. One seeks joy in her children and she builds her life on their successes. If they misbehave, she is crushed and as her identity is taken a blow. Another parent finds joy in God and offers her children to him. As she parents, she feels his pleasure. In Psalm 16, David writes about the joy he has in God. David says, He set the Lord always before him. Even in the regular and the mundane, we may seek his pleasure if we set the Lord always before us. So, this is my question to you. Do you say, we can feel his pleasure when we what? When we what? So for me, for me, if I'm applying this, I can feel God's pleasure when I teach at Holmes High School for the glory of God. Instead of being consumed with the days left until we get to summer break, which is four, by the way, I can work and teach in a way that glorifies God. Do you work for the glory of God? Do you parent for the glory of God? Do you love your spouse for the glory of God? Do you live out retirement for the glory of God? All of these things, all of these things, you can feel God's pleasure if you set the Lord before you and glorify Him. I love this. Glenda. Glenda can play the organ or the play the piano, and it doesn't matter which because she plays each for the glory of God. Wes played softball, traveled around. Wes was a heck of a softball player, went on a 10-day missionary trip and played softball to the glory of God, saw dozens of inmates receive Jesus as Lord. Why? Because he used what God gifted him with for his glory. And all of us have our unique story here. 
God has gifted you in such a way that you should reflect His glory with the gifts He's given you and given me. And you can do that when you set the Lord before you. You can worship God, and when you worship God, watch out, because it will ignite work for you. And then finally, this is the last one. Worship replaces weeping. Look at verses 12 and 13. Many of the older priests and Levites, family heads, who had seen the former temple, wept aloud when they saw the foundation of this temple being laid, while many others shouted for joy. Why do you think they're weeping? No one could distinguish the sound of the shouts of joy from the sound of weeping because the people made so much noise and the sound was heard far away. They're weeping because some of them saw the glory that belonged to the temple Solomon built. And when they saw the outline of the new temple, they're like, that's not right. I thought we were coming back for bigger and better things, but this is not bigger and this will not be better. And so they wept. They tried to get back to a glory that was once theirs, but it won't be any longer. But then some who never experienced any temple were shouting for joy at the glory that was happening and God bringing back his people. Haggai informs us right here. Haggai is a prophet during this time, and, and bear with me, it's a little bit of reading, but I want you to hear his words. In Haggai 2, 2 through 9, says this, Speak to Zerubbabel, son of Shittil, and governor of Judah, and Joshua, son of Josedak, the high priest, and the remnant of the people. Ask them, Who of you is left who saw the house in its former glory? How does it look to you now? Does it not seem to you like nothing? Uh, yes, that is what it seems like. But now, be strong, Zerubbabel, declares the Lord. Be strong, Joshua, son of Josedak, the high priest. Be strong, all you people in the land declares the Lord, and work, for I am with you, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what I covenanted with you when you came out of Egypt, and my spirit remains among you. Do not fear. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land, and I will shake all nations, and what is desired by all nations will come, and I will fill this house with glory says the Lord Almighty. The silver is mine, the gold is mine, declares the Lord Almighty. The glory of this present house will be greater than the glory of this former house, says the Lord Almighty. And in this place, I will grant, grant peace, declares the Lord Almighty. How awesome would it be to hear that message as you're building this temple, realizing this is not working out. And then you hear this word coming, talking about how God will fill the glory of the temple. You see, the people in Solomon's day, once they built the temple, fire fell from heaven and God's glory filled the temple and the people, when they saw their glory, hit the ground and their face to the ground, worshiping God. What a powerful demonstration of God's glory. Now, we, on this side of history, have seen something more glorious. You know who attended a feast of tabernacle? Jesus attended a feast once. Jesus attended a feast of the tabernacle. And you want to know what he said? Remember, the feast, what did it celebrate? God's presence and God's provision. Jesus celebrates the feast, and in John 7, 37, this is what he says. 
On the last greatest day of the festival, Jesus stood up and said in a loud voice, Let anyone who is thirsty come to me and drink. Now, you might be wondering, what in the world is Jesus talking about? Well, you want to know what happens in the wilderness? You never know where the next water fountain is. And you remember Moses had to touch a rock and water would flow and the people could drink. They were dying of thirst. And God provided water. And here Jesus is saying, hey, I will give you living water. As a matter of fact, you remember that passage in Hebrews that talks about how praise should be on our lips continually? Well, it starts out with this. For here we do not have an enduring city, but we're looking for a city that is to come. This isn't our home. We're waiting for it. In Revelation 21, we see it. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth passed away, and there is no longer any sea. Now, I want you to hear this, because this will be your reality if you have come to Jesus and drunk the water he provides. This is true. This is going to be our reality. This life will never satisfy. This city is passing away. But there's a city that is coming. This is it. I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down with heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard in a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the older things have passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. That's why Jesus gets up at this Feast of Tabernacles and said, hey, if anybody's thirsty, come to me. If you want your soul, a thirsty soul, to be quenched, run to Jesus. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.